We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. As journalistic reports from towns in Ukraine occupied by Russian forces continue to come out, evidence of war crimes is mounting. But what happens from here? If dozens, perhaps hundreds of Bucha civilians were killed by Russian forces, what kind of documentation is needed in the search for justice for those people? We've got a reporter on the ground, as well as a panel of human rights experts who can contextualize what we're seeing in Ukraine and help provide insight into the investigations that are to come. This is a difficult show we've got for you this morning, but it's important to understand what's at stake on the long road ahead. That's all next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Addressing the United Nations last week, Ukrainian President Zelensky accused Russia of committing war crimes and called for the body to convene a tribunal. But there's a long way to go between the early reports that we're seeing about particular Ukrainian towns and something something resembling justice. First, here to walk us through what Human Rights Watch has found in the country, we're joined by Rachel Denver, Deputy Director of the Europe and Central Asia Division of Human Rights Watch. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Can you tell us what the HRW staff has been able to put together about what's happening on the ground? Well, if you're talking specifically about Bucha, I can tell you that we started reporting about the uh, potential war crimes and in some cases, you know, actual war crimes uh, in Bucha before uh, the Russian troops left mm-hmm. uh, interviewing people from Bucha uh, in mid-March. And we have, we documented uh, several cases of uh, summary execution of men uh, in Bucha. Um, so we documented one while the place was still under Russian control. And, uh, and when I say document, I mean, we interviewed people who, I witnessed these summary shootings. Mm-hmm. Um, so we documented one of these before Ukrainian forces retook the bill at the town. And we documented two more uh, last week when my colleague was on the ground in Bucha. 
Um, and my colleague in, who's been on the ground in Bucha has also seen um, the bodies of um, many of at least nine other uh, civilians where the circumstantial evidence at least suggests that they were also potential victims of summary executions, although we don't actually know the circumstances of those deaths yet. Mm -hmm. Look, I think it's important to emphasize that there wasn't any one single massacre in Bucha. Mm -hmm. It's people were killed in separate incidents during the Russian forces, uh, while Russian forces had control of the town. And that lasted for about a one month period. So from March 5th until March 31st. So people died for different reasons, uh, including some of natural causes. And as you probably heard, or in your, your listeners have heard there, some of these people are buried in the, in, in the mass grave, which local officials, local authorities dug after the morgue had become nearly filled up in early March. And, and that, those included people, again, in the, in the mass grave included people who died for different reasons, not necessarily because of the violence. Mm. So we need to do more research to determine the full of the targeted killings, summary executions, torture, and other attacks on civilians. But even the early indications paint uh, a very somber picture. My, my colleague uh, said that it, it just felt like there was death everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, uh, that's for Bucha. We also, in, our, in the report that we published last week, we documented other cases of summary executions in, uh, in another town, in a village called Stari, uh, Stari Bukiv, which is in the Chernihiv region. And since then, several journalists, one from the New Yorker, one from the Guardian, have been there uh, to, to this village and they documented the same uh, and revealed uh, just how grim things were for civilians in, in, in Stari Bikov and, and Novi Bikov, the village across. So we documented an incident of the um, summary execution of six men uh, in, in that village. Uh, and it was uh, told to us by a uh, basically a, the, the mother of one of the, of one of the six men who was executed, who, who was nearby when her son was taken away, and who also found his body together with the five others the next day uh, lying by um, a building in, mm -hmm. on the outskirts of the village. Um, we also documented a case of repeated rape of a woman uh, by a, a Russian soldier uh, as she was sheltering in uh, a school in a village not far from Kharkiv. Uh, and that happened again uh, in, in mid-March. Um, and we documented other incidents of severe violence against civilians and mock executions. We documented a mock execution in, a, in, a, in, the, Kiev, in the Kiev region. We documented other incidents of, of severe violence. Now, these summary executions, the, the rape, uh, the mock execution, those are all, I mean, those are all, you know, obvious, uh, those are things that need to be investigated as war crimes. Um, and some of the other incidents of severe violence uh, also should be investigated as war crimes. Yeah. And I think we've all, so far, I think we, we have only really just scratched the surface. Rachel Denver, Deputy Director with the Europe and Central Asian Division of Human Rights Watch, I wanted to ask you about how this conflict is different from other recent wars and conflicts, either in 
the way that these prospective war crimes are being carried out or in the, the coverage that those war crimes are receiving and how that kind of changes the role of an NGO like HRW? I really don't like to compare conflicts, just like I don't like to compare countries, uh, human rights records. I think that those comparisons, I think I'll leave that to the historians, the political scientists, the conflictologists. There's certainly a lot of interesting comparisons to make, but I think for an NGO like ours that is trying to get the facts and make sure that people can tell their stories Mm -hmm. and push for justice, I think it's really important to focus on just this war and and this context. But I I mean, I, I see why you're asking the question. And I think what's common though, is the methodology that we use in when we document uh, human, humanitarian law violations and the violations of the rules of armed conflict wherever we work, whether it's Ukraine or Syria or Chechnya or any other war, um, uh, you know, Yemen, uh, Iraq. Um, so we use the same methodology everywhere, and that is by interviewing as many witnesses, eyewitnesses survivors, victims, officials, as we possibly can, uh, and in very deep, detailed interviews um, by using satellite imagery, by examining other digital media, whether it's uh, photos that we can verify in terms of, you know, to, to geolocate and also to get experts to examine what is actually happening in the photographs uh, the same with videos, geolocate them, ensure, do a reverse imaging to make sure that they are, they are in fact genuine. We bring in our arms experts who can help us identify the kinds of weapons that are used in attacks that appear to be indiscriminate or disproportionate. In other words, a, a bombing and shelling that don't distinguish between uh, or don't adequately distinguish or that wantonly uh, do not distinguish between civilians and civilian objects like hospitals, schools, apartment buildings, shops and the like on the one hand and legitimate military targets on the other. So our arms experts uh, help uh, you know provide the expertise for that. We also um, do mapping that help us identify where legitimate military targets might have been uh, in relation to civilian objects. So we, as a combination of, uh, of our, uh, our digital laboratories work and our experts who are on the ground doing, uh, doing interviewing and by examining the scenes themselves. So, I mean, uh, I think it's important to underscore that finally now, now that Russian troops have moved on out of some of these uh, towns and villages uh, in Kiev region and in Chernihiv region where, where our experts are now, um, we, we can actually examine things for ourselves. So we look for you know, we're not we're not ourselves forensic experts, but we can you know we can still glean a lot by by what we see. So we, uh, you know, all of these are aspects that we pull together to to paint a picture to call that that allows us to uh, that gives us authority when we when we call for for justice. Mm-hmm. I know you uh, are extremely busy and have to head out uh, shortly, but I, I did want to ask you one last question, which is, as the fight concentrates in eastern Ukraine, 
How do you expect the human rights situation to change, and how will Human Rights Watch sort of respond to those changing conditions in the war itself? That's a really good question. I mean, the Eastern Ukraine is where this war started. Well, actually, no, actually, the war started in, in Crimea back in 2014, and first uh, Russian authorities seized and occupied Crimea, and then they supported a, a civil war. They, they supported... Um, and backed uh, uh, armed gangs in Eastern Ukraine and Donetsk and Luhansk region. So look, this is where the Russian military is hoping to, I mean, they make quite clear they want to encircle the uh, Ukrainian military, which has its strongest, uh, you know, its strongest force uh, for now. Um, And because they've been fighting the war there since 20, so I think we're, you know, we're, we need to sort of brace ourselves for the worst. Um, we need to brace ourselves for, of, you know, extensive uh, bombing and shelling. Um, already we've seen that, um, uh, you know, thousands of civilians have been evacuating. And we saw what happened last week when civilians who were trying to evacuate out of Kramatorsk were killed and injured as a result of the uh Shell, the the missile uh, the shelling of uh, of the of the train station in Kramatorsk. So we're quite concerned that there will be more indiscriminate bombing and shelling there, especially because I you know this is going to it's shaping up to be a quite a vicious battle. I hope that as many civilians as possible mm-hmm. will evacuate, but there are bound to be some that are that will, who will be left behind for a variety of reasons. It's usually the people who. You know, older people or people with disabilities who can't, who have, diff, you know, face challenges leaving. Um, so we're very concerned about their fate, uh, very concerned about, and we will be trying to document what is happening to them. We will be trying to document the need uh, for that, for all sides to uphold uh, the rules of arm, the rules of war so that people who need to evacuate can evacuate. Um, and uh, look, we, our job is to document how the sides are upholding the Geneva Conventions mm-hmm. is not to go into the line of <laughs> right. go into the right. line of combat. So we'll have to we'll be doing that kind of work yeah. for the most part remotely until the hostilities subside. Thanks so much for your work and thanks so much for joining us. Rachel Denver, Deputy Director of the Europe and Central Asian Division of Human Rights Watch. We're talking human rights in Ukraine. We'll be back with more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the human rights situation in Ukraine and prospective war crimes committed there by Russian forces. We're now joined by James Marson, European security correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Marson's currently reporting from Ukraine, has been covering the country for the last 15 years. Thanks so much for joining us, James. My pleasure. We're also joined by Marty Flax, director of the Human Rights Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thanks so much for joining us, Marty. Thanks for having me. And finally, we have Anjali Perrin, Associate Director of the Project on War Crimes and Mass Graves at Columbia Law School. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. James, I wanted to go to you first. You've reported a series of really brutal stories from Bucha. What do you want people to know about what you saw there? Look, I think what we've tried to document um, over the past uh, week and a half, you know, since the the, the Russian forces uh, began to move out of this this area around Kiev, is just to get into these villages and towns um, and try to understand exactly uh, exactly what happened and try to document it as quickly as possible, and then also to try to understand why it happened. Mm. Um, so what happened is that uh, the Russians occupied um, a large amount of territory. Um, around Kiev. They were trying to take Kiev. They didn't manage to do that, and then they retreated. So there are villages and towns, particularly around the west and the north of Kiev, that were occupied by the Russians. And after a certain amount of time in those um, in those villages and towns, the Russians um, weren't able to make any uh, military advances onto Kiev as they'd hoped, and they were actually getting hammered by the artillery um, and, and by Ukraine's army. And so they were getting very frustrated. They were getting killed. Um, and uh, the general picture seems to be that they took their anger out on the, uh, the Ukrainian population um, in those towns and villages. Um, and increasingly, they were on the lookout for people who they thought were um, either, in fact, uh, were um, working to send uh, uh, sort of uh, reconnaissance data, intelligence data about the location of Russian forces to Ukrainian forces that they could then use to, to shell those forces, to attack those forces. Or um, they were attacking people who they believed um, uh, could be doing so. Um, so that's the sort of general picture of of, of how things happened. Um, obviously, all of that goes alongside some of the some of what what, what appeared to be a, a more kind of terror um, that, that that was being used in some of these towns, um, in particular in particular in Bucha, which which I'm sure everybody's heard about. Mm-hmm. You also reported this remarkable story about another town in which the village mayor was executed after a period of time. Can you tell us about that? That's right. So this was a, a very small village, um, about twenty-five miles to the to the west of, of Kiev. Uh, it's called Motlijen. Um and it's just off the the main road, that, the sort of east-west uh, road uh, in Ukraine, in and out of Kiev. And um, the mayor was this lady called Olha Suchenko, and she had been mayor for nearly twenty years. She was, you know. You hear very positive things about her from all of those, from all the villagers we spoke to. You know, she was the kind of person who threw herself into village life, trying to spruce up public buildings, organize concerts, but also settling those disputes that you get in a village between neighbors over where their kitchen gardens should end and and their neighbors should begin. Um, But she also took, um, so when the Russians came, um, she was at the center of making sure that people were, were uh, despite the Russian occupation, people were getting the medicines they needed, people were getting the food they needed. Um, 
because the village the village was really cut off. Um, so she was at the center of that effort on the one hand. And on the other hand, she was also working to provide intelligence data to the Ukrainian forces um, who were resisting uh, the Russian army. Uh, she was working with a whole, um, a, a, you know, a small group of people. There were, there were, there were her friends. Um, there was her husband. Um, and then at, at one point, um, the Russians... Uh, found out about this effort um, and they came and they, they 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 took her away and her husband um, and then later they came back for her son and um, nothing more was seen of them until the Ukrainian uh, forces retook the village at the end of uh, the end of March and they were found uh, in a shallow grave uh, with their hands bound and they were still there um, a few days later when uh, when me and my colleagues uh, uh, got there. Mm. Marty Flax, uh, director of the Human Rights Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, found myself reading this story, thinking about someone helping the resistance and, and wanting to understand what's considered war and what's considered war crime in a case like this, and how would that be evaluated? Sure. So war crimes are grave violations of the 1949 Geneva Conventions, which are a series of treaties that every country in the world, including Russia, have signed on to that outline acceptable conduct in war and lays out what is and is not acceptable to do in the context of a conflict like the one we're seeing in Ukraine. And some of the things that it lays out as violations of those principles are things like intentionally targeting civilians uh, and civilian infrastructure, um, carrying out attacks that might have a, a military objective but disproportionately harm civilians, uh, indiscriminately bombing civilian areas, um, kidnapping, rape, looting, targeting protected places like hospitals and churches. These are all acts that we've seen carried out in Ukraine over the past six weeks. And so there's a, a lot of evidence. And of course, the U.S. government and others have concluded that war crimes have been committed in the context of Ukraine. Um, but obviously, the documentation and the evidence surrounding any particular incident or any particular case is going to be extremely important in order to ensure that there is eventually accountability for those crimes, either through domestic tribunals and trials inside Ukraine or at an international court in the case of some of the, the more systematic uh, and, and serious of those crimes. Yeah. James Marson, you, you've been in Ukraine reporting for 15 years. You have family and friends there. Did you anticipate the brutality of what you saw and heard in the towns outside Kiev? Well, we already had an inkling of it because the reports were coming out, sort of trickling out through accounts from from um, from witnesses. Um, I think one thing that we we didn't quite anticipate was uh, many uh, observers didn't anticipate was that was that Putin would would go for this war in the first place. And I think what 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 one of the reasons for that is because that people who know Ukraine very well understood the the willingness and the capability of the Ukrainians to resist. And I think what we're seeing um, is, is that uh, this level of resistance is in some ways um, uh, leading to uh, the, the atrocities that we are seeing because the, the, the Russians believe that they would be welcomed as liberators. They believe that they would uh, be uh, marching into Kiev um, within a few days. Uh, and they didn't achieve that. And as soon as they started getting targeted and, and killed and hit uh, uh, by the Ukrainians, 
um, they, they, uh, they, they were shocked and they turned on the, the local population very, very quickly, and particularly anybody who they believed to be, to be helping the Ukrainians. You know, I had somebody recount a, a, a conversation uh, she had. Uh, this was a resident of Bucha uh, who had a conversation with a Russian soldier saying, we drove into, we drove into your, we just drove into your country and, and then you started shooting at us. You know, as, as if, as if, and she said, but, but you, you're in my country, you know, you came to invade, you didn't come for a cup of tea. Uh, so, so there was real shock on the Russian side. And that then I think is, is something that then uh, manifested itself in this, in, in this violence. Yeah. So I know, you know, the fight is really moving east and that means you're moving east too to, to get closer to the front. Um, what are you anticipating the next, you know, week looks like uh, in the conflict and, and for yourself too? Well, I think what you're going to see, um, you know, so far we haven't seen um, uh, much change in the last week uh, on on the on the front lines. Uh, the Russians are pushing very very hard already in the east. The Ukrainians are, are pouring forces towards the east because that's obviously where the next big big battles are going to take place. Um, uh, but th- there's a question now for the Russians, which is. Um, do you make a very quick rush to try to uh, put some gains on on the battlefield map um, before May the 9th, which is a very, very important uh, holiday for the Russians. This is Victory Day for the Second World War, which is normally uh, uh, celebrated with great uh, pomp uh, on Red Square. Um, or are we going to see the, the Russians trying to reconstitute their um, their strength um, to resupply their forces uh, and, and refit them before before they try and make a new push into the into the uh, into the Ukraine Ukrainian East? Um, so I think we've got uh, a little bit of a bit, bit of an interesting moment where we don't know what's. I mean, certainly the Russians are going to keep pushing there, but are they going to make a, a big effort before May May ninth? Uh, wait to see. Yeah. We're talking about the human rights situation in Ukraine and prospective war crimes committed there by Russian forces. Been talking with James Marson, European security correspondent with The Wall Street Journal. Uh, we know you've got to get back to, to reporting out there. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, James. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. We're still joined by Marty Flax, director of the Human Rights Initiative at the Center for Strategic International Studies, as well as Anjali Perrin, associate director of the Project on War Crimes and mass graves at Columbia Law School. We would like to hear from you. Do you have questions for our experts on how this war crime, this push for war crime justice might uh, go? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or KQED Forum, and the emails forum at kqed.org. Anjali, you heard uh, James Marson talking about encountering a shallow grave in a Ukrainian town. And I know that there's this kind of difficult balance that has to be struck in documenting what's happening in Ukraine. You, the journalists are kind of going out, uh, finding evidence of, uh, uh, of what's happened. But there's also a danger in them finding that evidence and disturbing, right? Can you talk to us about what needs to be done to document what's happening in a way so that it can be used in a future time? Yeah, that's exactly right, Alexis. Um, There's often, you know, journalists and those who are on the front lines and responding quickly, either to get the information out or just community members making decisions about burying bodies for dignified reasons are often facing these enormous ethical and practical trade-offs in deciding how should they cover these events, what to investigate, how far to go. Um, The work that they're doing is 
crucial and, and urgent and really at great personal risk, especially in Ukraine. We're already seeing a large number um, of journalists who have been killed or injured in covering the conflict. And I think we wouldn't have the kind of push for accountability and justice if that information was not out in the public sphere. And so it's vital work that they're doing. Um, but at the same time, the actions that can be taken now um, can have long-term effects and can lead to graves being disturbed, can lead to crucial evidence being lost. Often uh, those who aren't forensic scientists, those who are non-professionals, don't actually know where a grave starts or ends. So even if there's a shallow grave with a number of people, maybe they were killed you know, right next to it. And maybe that area also has really important evidence that is going to then be able to establish how they were killed. Or I've seen situations where maybe, you know, there's track marks that you could capture that would show you a little bit about what the perpetrators did. And so kind of when you're going there, it's really important to be very careful in, in how you approach a mass grave site or another site of atrocities, because for all intents and purposes, they are crime scenes um, and there's a need to treat them as such. Yeah. Marty Flex, you know, when we talk about prosecuting war crimes, it's not so simple as just knowing that something really terrible happened somewhere. What has to really line up for someone to be brought before a court and, and tried for war crimes? Yeah, that's right. It's extremely complicated. Uh, and it requires really three components to kind of to align in order to bring successful accountability at an international tribunal. One is sufficient evidence of a serious crime having taken place. And this is what Anjali was just speaking to. You know, one of the uh, ironies of this situation is that we have an overwhelming amount of evidence. We have uh, not just the investigators and the uh, human rights workers and the journalists on the ground, as well as the Ukrainian government on the ground documenting uh, what they're seeing from a professional point of view, but we have many, many Ukrainian civilians who are taking their own cell phone photos and videos. We have drone footage, we have satellite imagery to help us put together the picture of what's happening uh, on the ground in this campaign, both from the Russian air war, as well as from uh, the crimes committed by Russian ground forces. And if anything, there's just an overwhelming amount of data and documentation that has taken place that prosecutors will have to sort through in order to identify the kinds of patterns and policies that they will need to show in order to establish an international crime. But there's no lack of documentation here. I don't think that the, the difficulty prosecutors will have is in showing that war crimes were committed in the course of this conflict. Um, the second leg of that stool is, is a court with jurisdiction to prosecute. And there are some conflicts and there are some situations where atrocities have been committed, where that's the most difficult piece. You think about the situation in Syria uh, and many other situations where it's an internal conflict or a civil war, and the, the government in question is, is the perpetrator of the crimes or is complicit in those crimes and doesn't have an interest in investigating and prosecuting and certainly doesn't have an interest in allowing an international court to investigate or prosecute. Um, we have the opposite situation in Ukraine. If anything, we have uh, a lot of potential venues for prosecution of these crimes. Ukraine itself is obviously motivated to hold perpetrators accountable and assuming their justice system is, is functioning and their government is functioning 
going forward, they'll be able to bring charges of war crimes uh, against any individuals that that they get a hold of. Um, other countries across Europe and elsewhere have opened their own investigations under the principle of universal jurisdiction. So they could actually try individuals for these crimes in places like Germany or Spain or Sweden. And of course, we have the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court, which Ukraine has granted so that it can investigate these crimes in Ukraine. And that prosecutor has opened a full investigation, has already visited Ukraine, is documenting um, those abuses in order to try and build a case against uh, the most uh, the top level perpetrators for the most serious crimes. So we don't have a challenge with uh, with finding a court to prosecute these crimes. The piece that's going to be the most challenging, in my opinion, in this case, is is identifying and capturing de defendants to be able to stand trial. Um, we have to be able to draw a line between a crime and a perpetrator. Um, war crimes are not. Uh, perpetrated by states. They're not perpetrated by a military unit. They're perpetrated by an individual. And so we have to identify which individuals are responsible for those crimes, whether they committed the crime with their own hands or they have command responsibility, you know, and gave an order or implemented a policy to commit that crime. And most importantly, and most difficult in this case, we have to secure that defendant for trial. We have to either capture them on the battlefield or they have to travel to a place where uh, government is willing to arrest them and turn them over for trial or down the line we have to have a situation in Russia where that government has an incentive to turn over potential suspects for accountability and I think that's the piece of accountability for these crimes that's going to take the most patience and the most persistence uh, in the years going forward. Yeah. And I mean there are examples of this happening where it does take, you know, 20 years, right? But people, it's, it, the process can work, right? It can. And we have certainly seen international justice in a number of cases. Just last week, the International Court, Criminal Court, uh, started the first trial of someone facing charges for the genocide in Darfur, nearly 19 years after that genocide began. And it took a change in government in Sudan for that defendant to actually decide to turn himself in. Uh, and thought, decided he might be better off facing trial in The Hague than, uh, than in Sudan. So these things do take time, but we've seen guilty verdicts in conflicts like the genocide in Rwanda uh, and in the former Yugoslavia. Um, we've seen, you know, we saw Slobodan Milosevic eventually also be arrested for his crimes and face trial. He unfortunately died before that verdict came in, but he did find himself in the dock and he was prosecuted. Um, and so, you know, there's no um, you know, there's no statute of limitations on these crimes and there's no limitations in terms of how high up responsibility can go. Heads of state all the way on down can be held responsible for these things. We just need to have this sort of patience and persistence and diligence to continue to look for opportunities to actually hold them accountable. We're talking about the human rights situation in Ukraine, prospective war crimes committed there by Russian forces. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the human rights situation in Ukraine. We're joined by Marty Flax, the Kozravi uh, Chair in Principled Internationalism and Director of the Human Rights Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, as well as Anjali Perrin, the Associate Director of the Project on War Crimes and Mass Graves at Columbia Law School. Uh, Anjali, I wanted to ask you about the way that war crime investigation has changed as as uh, we were hearing earlier, um, the amount of digital evidence that now exists is tremendous. So how do you try and work with the kind of open source digital investigators and make sure that that evidence is solid uh, and matches up with other things that can be known? Yeah, it's um, it's a good question, especially as you're seeing this explosion in photo, video, other forms of evidence that you can now find. And I think it's been a real game changer in the investigation of war crimes. Uh, a few years ago, uh, you without satellite evidence, you wouldn't have been able to definitively locate where a gravesite was. You wouldn't be able to see changes over time. And so this this information has been really what has allowed forensic investigators to then go on and, and carry out large investigations of a number of these incidents many, many years down the line. And so I think it plays a really important role first in providing that preliminary evidence base that then allows investigators to go and do a deep dive. It helps to know where the GPS coordinates of where a grave site might be, who was involved. Um, you may have video of, of bodies being buried at the time. Sometimes you have perpetrator video uh, of them actually commissioning crimes, which is hugely important to getting to that third um, piece of holding specific individuals and accountables uh, accountable as as Marty was was talking about how do you actually get somebody who can be responsible before a court and and so the open source evidence has been vital for that at the same time it's not foolproof um and we often see a lot of mistakes what was what can be seen in a satellite image is potentially a mass grave or a body may be something different, or it might not be as big as it looks like uh, in the satellite image because the person who's evaluating it or, or taking a look at it might not actually be a forensic archaeologist and may not know how graves are actually created. So that's a bit of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it's absolutely indispensable to be actually to actually being able to do these investigations. Um, and at the same time, it's often not sufficient. Yeah. You know, some of our local folks here in the Bay Area seem like they've been pretty deeply involved in this. The Berkeley Protocol on Digital Open Source Investigations, something that kind of came out of uh, of here. What does a what does a protocol like that give to investigators uh, who are who are looking into these kinds of things? I think what it does is one provide a little bit of a 
set of guidelines for those who are doing open source investigation? What are the kinds of things that you should be looking for? Um, what information is useful for investigators down the line? How do you start to build an evidence base that will be really helpful to a forensic investigator? So for example, um, the weather on a specific day can be really important to understanding how graves were formed, whether there's water in that area and will make a difference to forensic scientists, but it's not the kind of thing a journalist might report on. And so there's really important information that you can get from that. And I think the second piece is an ethical framework. Ultimately, you know, each of these people are someone's child or someone's mother or someone's brother or someone's sister. And there's a real ethical dilemma involved in what information do you share? What do you not share? How do you inform people in advance? Um, we've been seeing information of people finding out about the death of their loved ones through social media, through media reporting. And I think what that kind of protocol does is also set up a little bit of an ethical framework for how do you carry out this information and ensure that it's not you know, just a photo on a, on a computer screen to you, but actually this is somebody's family. And, and, and ultimately, you know, the, the laws of armed conflict um, have a whole range of provisions around treatment of the dead and management of missing persons. And it's all kind of governed by the broad principle of the rights of families to know about the fate of their missing relatives. And so that ethical piece is extremely important in addition to just collecting the evidence. Yeah. So, you know, we aren't trying to directly compare war crimes in one place to another, but I do wonder Will the intense international scrutiny in Ukraine help with the prosecution of crimes in other places that perhaps are not receiving and have not received nearly as much media attention as the conflict in Ukraine? Um, you know, just to speculate, I think so. Um, I think what these types of events do is they force a little bit of a reckoning um, and they force folks to think about how do we do investigations? What are the guidelines and protocols for being around a mass grave? How do we think about the safety of journalists, the safety of first responders? How do we manage questions like trauma? Um, we saw post, you know, 9-11, uh, DNA techniques around the world improved a tremendous amount because of the enormous amount of funding that went in to trying to identify those who had been killed in the 9-11 attacks. And that helped DNA processes around the world. And it improved the way in which DNA is conducted in, in situations in which I work, like in the Central African Republic. And so I think there is um, knock-on benefits in terms of investigative techniques, in terms of resources committed to thinking about these crimes, in terms of general awareness about broader human rights abuses and international crimes around the world. Yeah. I want to bring in our first uh, caller, Raza from San Carlos. Welcome to the show, Raza. Oh, hello. Thank you for taking my call. It is a great show. I am really listening uh, with keen interest. My question is, we have a history of rejecting the jurisdiction of uh, International Criminal Court over the last, uh, since its inception, uh, for us and for Israel, including human rights violations and, uh, uh, you know, war crimes. So how do we know that Russia will not do the same and what moral uh, ground do we have to stand on when we have uh, rejected the jurisdiction and now we are championing it? 
Yeah, Braza, that's a really good question. I, I want to read uh, one comment from Steve uh, along a, a similar point. Steve writes, all wars include war crimes. When the U.S. causes them, our government explains them away as, quote, collateral damage, even when the targets were supposedly enemy fighters who happened to be living among civilians. The U.S. does not submit itself to the International Criminal Court. You can understand why some countries accuse the U.S. of double standards. So the U.S. should step back and allow other countries to take the lead in prosecuting Russia for war war crimes, as well as be less obstructionist when the tables are turned and U.S. actions may be suspect. Neutral parties, if there are such nations anymore, should lead the investigations and produce reports and findings. Marty Flex, director of the Human Rights Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, how do you think about the U.S.'s standing in this particular realm, given the uh, comments of the listeners there? Yeah, great question. So, you know, the U.S. has uh, as the caller indicated, a complicated history when it comes to these international fora for justice, right? We helped create the Nuremberg trials. We helped, uh, you know, put together the Geneva Conventions. For many, many years, we really were at the forefront of leading international justice efforts and actually were involved in the drafting of the Rome Statute that created the International Criminal Court. But of course, in the end, we have not joined the court um, and at various times have been very strongly opposed to even providing financial or other support to the court. Um, at the same time, the U.S. has supported individual prosecutions by that court under certain circumstances. So the situation in Darfur is a great example of when the, the George W. Bush administration decided that the situation was grave enough that they would allow the U.N. Security Council to refer that situation to the International Criminal Court, um, even though we ourselves do not support uh, do not support the, the court as an institution. Um, so we've had this sort of yes, no, on off complex relationship with with the ICC. And we're seeing that play out even now where we just saw the Senate pass a resolution unanimously supporting the ICC investigation um, into the situation in Ukraine. Part of that is driven by the, the structure of the ICC as a court of last resort. And this goes to some of the reasons the U.S. has been skeptical of, uh, and, and Israel and others have been skeptical of how the court will play out in practice. On paper, the court is designed to be um, a place to go for justice when it's not available anywhere else, where a domestic court um, is not willing or able to try these most serious crimes. Um, and so in places uh, where it is a civil war, where the government is the perpetrator of those crimes, you can go to the ICC for justice. If there's a situation where a domestic court uh, is available and the country is willing to hold its own citizens accountable, the ICC is meant to sort of step away, back off and allow that country to take jurisdiction. So the U.S. has always argued if, if we are accused of something like a war crime, we have a domestic accountability system. You know, that's illegal under our law. We will hold our soldiers or our, our officials responsible for that crime ourselves. We don't need an international criminal court to do that. Um, but in practice, there's always a fear that a court like this could be politicized and that it would find uh, jurisdiction and, and prosecute U.S. service members, despite that belief that the U.S., uh, could do it themselves. So that's always been the dynamic within the U.S. government and with Congress about how far we go in supporting the court. Mm. Um, I do think it's important that uh, although to the to the comments point, 
I think it is important that other countries continue to, who are members of the ICC, continue to take the lead in supporting that process. There are some things that it's really important for the U.S. to provide to the court in this conflict. And one, and the most important one, is information. So one of the things the court needs to do uh, to prove cases against senior officials is show a policy or pattern of, uh, of war crime as a as a strategy in, in the perpetration of this conflict. And they need to identify, they need to show who's responsible at the policy level, at the command level. And the US, which has done a, a pretty good job of declassifying intelligence whenever it can, probably has some useful information for prosecutors and maybe the only one that has some useful information for prosecutors to help identify which individuals at a senior level are giving these orders or are responsible for these policies that are carrying that are resulting in indiscriminate bombings or targeting of civilians or or rape or pillaging and these other atrocities. Mm-hmm. And so if the US has that kind of information, I hope that it will share that with the ICC in order to help them make the case. Yeah. Listener Robert writes, can you address the outrageous Russian response claiming these atrocity charges are fake and staged in light of the range and depth of independent reporting and investigations and independent of Ukrainian government reports? Anjali, do you want to talk about countering that kind of, I I guess I would call it disinformation in this case? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, just to sort of preface all of this, it's extraordinarily difficult and it takes a lot of resources to demonstrate whether something is real or not. Um, in today's day and age, it is extraordinarily easy to be able to doctor uh, photos, to be able to doctor videos. It's hard to rely on a lot of information and the journalists on the ground have been taking enormous steps to try to show that the information is actually real. And you know, you've seen this also with respect to hot button issues in the US, um, determining what's fake news and determining what is the truth is now extremely difficult, even if the evidence you have is overwhelming. Uh, The way in which to go about doing it really is triangulation, getting multiple sources uh, that are saying the same thing and have multiple sources and types of information being able to corroborate. So for example, Uh, Russian forces said that they weren't involved in some of the killings in Bucha, but satellite evidence was able to demonstrate that, or at least is showing that it's consists that the bodies were there many days before the Russians left that occupied town. That combined with the position of photos, combined with testimonial evidence, combined with uh, other forms of reporting, photo, video, start to paint a picture that's very difficult to then refute. But where you just have one source, this is what can be very difficult. And so even though there's an overwhelming amount of evidence, um, if the Russian state, if individuals who are in senior positions of power ever do decide to come before any form of court um, to face trial, you can bet that they're going to try their very hardest to try to uh, delegitimize a lot of the information that's being collected. And that's why multiple sources of evidence, that's why having really good chain of custody, taking great photos, understanding what happened um, across time and across space is really important to actually being able to ensure that the evidence will hold up um, because there has been um, some information that hasn't been credible 
across the, the conflict and there has been misinformation. And so it's, in, it's really important to separate out what is misinformation and what is real. Yeah. Marty Flex, a listener tweets, are there different rules for the invading country versus the country being invaded? Will Ukrainians be held to the same standard if they've committed war crimes? Yeah, there certainly are not different standards uh, for different countries. Um, There's uh, one set of international humanitarian law when it comes to armed conflict, and both sides are held accountable to it. So if uh, Ukrainians do commit these kinds of crimes, and um, we've started to see some indications of things like executions of captured Russian soldiers, if those things prove to be true, um, then they should and will hopefully be equally prosecuted Um, by the International Criminal Court or another court with jurisdiction. Um, It's important to separate out the legality of the invasion itself, uh, which is the, you know, that Russia has committed a crime merely by invading Ukraine illegally with the conduct of the war, um, which can either be conducted in accordance with international humanitarian law or not. And in this case, uh, if either side is responsible for committing those war crimes, they would be held accountable. Yeah. Anjali Perrin, I wanted to ask you, this is very difficult work. You're evaluating mass graves, looking at forensic evidence of of really terrible crimes. How do do you stay with this work, you know, as people who are out here, our listeners who are just kind of encountering these horrors here? How do you stay with this work? I mean, I think the way I look at it is um, I find the work to be really hopeful, actually. in a lot of these situations, and especially most of those that I work on, it's been many, many years since the crimes have been committed and family members have been fighting for justice for many, many years. And once you reach the point that you're talking to someone in my team, um, you've probably reached the point that we're thinking about a forensic investigation of these crimes. And we're at least thinking about the possibility of trying to identify your loved one, um, which, may have been many decades in the waiting. Um, I speak to family members who have waited 30 years to know what happened to their son and have been fighting and campaigning and pushing for 30 years. And to that extent, we're able to provide them or at least try to provide them with some closure to be able to use scientific techniques to identify their loved ones, to return them to the family so that they can have a dignified burial and move on. Because often, you know, family members don't move on from the uncertainty of not knowing, is my loved one alive? Are they gone? And they stay with this long after the news moves on. And so for me, it's very hopeful work because you're being able to work with family members directly to be able to give them some kind of response, um, irrespective of what a criminal process may do. It allows them to have some form of dignity and humanity returned, and that process can be really crucial. We've been talking about the human rights situation in Ukraine and possible war crimes committed there by Russian forces with Anjali Perrin, Associate Director of the Project on War Crimes and Mass Graves at Columbia Law School. Thanks for joining us, Anjali. Thanks very much for having me and for covering this issue. Thank you. We've also been joined by Marty Flax, Kozravi Chair in Principled Internationalism and Director of the Human Rights Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thanks for joining us, Marty. Thanks for having us, Alexis. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. 
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.